Welcome to Newport Beach in the Rearview Mirror, a podcast about the events and people, famous and forgotten, that shaped Newport Beach. I'm Bill Lobdell. And bad mistakes, I've made a few. Welcome to part two of the 20 worst ideas in Newport Beach history. This time, we'll count down bad ideas 12 through 7 that have been proposed and some adopted in the city's long history. The 12th worst idea in city history was the Irvine Company's plan to develop Fashion Island as an indoor mall. Back in 1960, when Fashion Island was just a twinkle in the Irvine Company's eye, an indoor mall, which was all the rage at the time, was on the drawing board. But then they hired a young architect named Albert Trevino to actually design the center. Al, as he was known, took one look at the property and the plans and told the Irvine Company's powers that be that an enclosed mall atop a Newport Beach hill didn't take advantage of the ocean views, the fresh breezes, and California sunshine. In other words, what in the world were they thinking? But its bosses, kind of amazingly, needed more convincing. So Al took them to Chicago to tour the outdoor Old Orchard Mall in nearby Stokie, Illinois, a shopping center that had been completed a few years earlier and is considered the model for modern suburban shopping centers. Al asked this, if an outdoor mall could work in snowy, frigid cold Chicago, how much more successful would it be in sunny Southern California? Al's bosses were impressed, new plans were drawn up, and the rest is history. Fashion Island opened in 1967 and became and still is one of the finest open-air shopping centers in the United States. Two other interesting Fashion Island notes. One, the Irvine Company hardly altered Al's original plan, except they nixed the sky bridges he had envisioned that would have connected the office towers with Fashion Island. The last note, and this, if true, is a sad one. Al said that when Fashion Island was approaching completion, the Irvine Company didn't want a Latino as the face of the project, and they replaced him with a white architect who dealt with the media and the public. The 11th worst idea in Newport Beach history was when the city council tried to ban body surfing at the Wedge. This absolutely nutty proposal was covered in episode 5, but it deserves to be on this list, so I'll keep it short. In 1962, the Newport Beach City Council, at the request of the lifeguard chief, Bob Reed, voted 6-1 to one to permanently ban body surfing at the Wedge. But at the next city council meeting, where the ordinance would get a required second reading before passage, and this is almost always just a formality, Body surfers turned out in mass and packed the chambers. 
the council was hit with a human tidal wave of young, bleach-blonde body surfers protesting the soon-to-be-enacted law. Before the final vote, Mayor James Stoddard summed up his position this way, quote, I think people have the God-given right to drown themselves, unquote. The council then voted down the ban, and the wedge, of course, would go on to become the most famous and dangerous body surfing spot in the world. The tenth worst idea is having a completely incompetent city engineer design the jetties at the entrance to Newport Harbor. We've also covered this one before, this time in episode three, but I, I just can't leave it off the list. So a super quick summary for those who haven't heard that episode. In 1927, city engineer Paul E. Cressley rejected specifications for two jetties at the harbor mouth that were drawn up by the retired chief of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. This guy knew what he was doing. But Cressley decided to do it on his own, a decision probably driven by greed since he got a bonus for taking on the work. Cressley's jetty on the Corona del Mar side was almost half as short as recommended, made of concrete, not rocks, and built at the wrong angle. I mean, he completely botched it. Instead of preventing waves, it turned into a wave-generating machine to the delight of surfers and to the horror of boaters trying to get in and out of the harbor. Cressley's jetty on the wedge side of the harbor entrance was equally as bad. For some unknown reason, he extended the rocks along the shoreline so the jetty looked like a backward J as you faced the water. The configuration formed a river along the shoreline, took out several beach houses, and almost carved a second harbor entrance on the peninsula at M Street. Oh, and when Cressley was done, he left the railroad trestles, which were needed to transport the boulders to the jetty, on the beach to rot. Cressley was fired as soon as his handiwork was revealed as an utter disaster, and it took nearly a decade for proper jetties to be built. Whew, okay, this next worst idea is going to be controversial. It will be unpopular. It's a place where a lot of locals and tourists love. It's been the setting for TV shows and music videos. It's woven into the fabric of the city. That said, the ninth worst idea in Newport Beach history is building the Balboa Fun Zone in 1936. Okay, stay with me on this. Let's get some background. The fun zone is located on the site of a failed boatyard and sits basically at the foot of the Balboa Island ferry landing. When it opened, its main features were a used 45-foot Ferris wheel and 212 feet of Bayfront Beach. Later, a carousel would be added along with an arcade, bumper cars, and unremarkable eateries that sold what could be generously described as carnival food. 
Over the years, it's seen a parade of operators. I count at least seven, and that's not including the lending institutions that took over the property for three years in the 1970s. To date, no one has ever been able to put together the right mix of attractions, retail shops, and restaurants to make the Fun Zone a wildly successful business. In fact, in 1985, it was torn down and rebuilt with the hope that starting from scratch could reinvigorate the Fun Zone. But it didn't work. I'll fast forward through the ownership changes since then, and there have been a lot. But eventually, the Fun Zone became part amusement park and part ocean educational center for children. It's kind of, it's kind of a weird combo, and, and that didn't work either. To be fair, the COVID-19 shutdown played a, a large part in that failure. The Fun Zone is not without hope today. In 2021, Chartwell Real Estate Development bought it for a reported $21 million dollars It is almost an acre on the bayfront, so that seems to be not an unreasonable price. Chartwell is run by the Pyle family, longtime and respected members of the Newport Beach community who have pledged to revitalize the fun zone. This would be the umpteenth time someone has tried to revitalize the fun zone. I mean, it's had more makeovers than a Newport Beach housewife. Uh, All right, sorry about that. Still, I'm rooting for the piles, and I think everybody is. But here's the thing. The fun zone has been described as Newport Beach's Coney Island. And right there, that's the problem. Coney Island, dropped in the heart of charming and historic Balboa Village, is simply a mismatch. The picturesque bayfront is not a place, in my opinion, for arcade games, and bungee jumping attractions. Although, I'd keep the Ferris wheel. I think something similar to Lido Village would be a far better fit. A mixed-use development with trendy dining and fun retail shops and pop-ups, live music on the weekend. I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think Balboa has outgrown the fun zone, and that happened decades ago. I agree with Judge Robert Gardner, You can learn more about him in episode two, who grew up in Balboa in the 1920s and 30s and wrote in his book, Body Balboa, that the fun zone, quote, destroyed old Balboa. It was a cheap carnival operation run by carnival people. While many people have nice memories of the fun zone, I don't. It ruined my Balboa, tacky though the old place was. Old Balboa had style. The fun zone was tawdry, unquote. Like I said, I know this all is a minority opinion, but there it is. The eighth worst idea in Newport Beach history was trying to develop Corona de Mar at the turn of the 20th century. In real estate, it's not just location, location, location. It's also timing, timing, timing. Here's some background to this worst idea, and it's courtesy of Tom Hefferman and the Corona del Mar Historical Society that he runs. In 1904, George F. Hart bought 700 acres of what's now Corona del Mar from the Irvine Company for 
development. In case you're wondering, at the time, the Irvine Company owned more than 100,000 acres in Orange County, basically from Costa Mesa to Laguna Beach, from the ocean to the Santa Ana Mountains. And the Irvine Company was a ranch and farm operation and just didn't have much need in the early 20th century for coastal property. Hart paid $150 an acre for the land, and it, w- it was a massive track that ran from Jamboree Boulevard to Hazel Drive at the end of present-day Cronodomar and from what's now 5th Street to the ocean. Hart had elaborate plans for the development, the centerpiece of which was 23 parcels of land neatly laid out in a grid, plus a hotel and ocean and bay piers. The problem was, Hart was a man ahead of his time. Water service proved to be a challenge, though the larger issue was the remoteness of the property. A bumpy dirt road, which is now Bayside Drive, was basically the only way in and out of Cronodomar, unless you took a ferry or a boat from the peninsula across the bay to the development. Either way was quite a hassle. Predictably, Hart's lot sales were terrible. He sold a few lots in 1904, and that proved to be a banner year. In the next two years, he sold exactly zero and then had to return 360 acres to the Irvine Company. For the next decade, Hart struggled mightily to bring his vision to life, but he just couldn't get anyone else to buy into his dream. By 1915, 11 years after he got started, only about 15 homes had been built and less than 100 lots had been sold. Remember, this is just 100 lots out of the original 2,300. In other words, he had sold only about 4%, 4% of his original holdings. In 1916, George F. Hart finally gave up, trading his remaining 400 acres for 5,000 in Riverside County. You have to feel sorry for him. He was a developer with a great plan that was just a few decades too early. Just imagine him seeing Cronodomar today, which was developed largely as he had planned. I'm sure his eyes would be wide in wonder and his heart broken in a million pieces. While we're on the topic of Cronodomar development, I'm going to sneak in another bad idea that I didn't have on this list originally because I, I, just, I just overlooked it. But now it gets its day in the sun. This one is courtesy of friend of the podcast, Ron Yeo, the legendary architect and community activist. This terrible idea didn't happen all at once but took place over nearly a century as the city slowly loosened the residential zoning codes in Cronodomar, resulting today in mansions that could be more than 30 feet tall and three stories. Look, I'm not against large houses. Many in Cronodomar are simply stunning, and I, I wish I lived in one. And I'm certainly not blaming property owners who are 
just trying to get the most out of their property under the local zoning laws. But I think those mansions, which eventually will take over Corona del Mar in 30 or 60 or maybe 100 years, I mean, that's all there's going to be there, have already put a dent in the charm of Corona del Mar that will, that will never be fixed. In the 1960s, there were about 1,800 of those cute and funky cottages throughout CDM. And here's a fun fact. Some of those homes were called kit houses because they came from a kit, kind of like the forerunner to prefab homes, and could be put together in a single day. Of those 1,800 cottages still standing in the 1960s, only about 500 remain. And by the way, the Corona del Mar Historical Society has put together a list with photos of the top 100 remaining cottages in Corona del Mar. Its website is cdmhistorical.org. Well worth checking out. So how did we get here? How did we get to the current residential zoning laws? Prior to World War I, Corona del Mar had no zoning laws because it wasn't part of the city. And because most people live there only during the summer months, the most popular type of house was, not surprisingly, the simple beach cottage. And that provided CDM with its initial character. When the city of Newport Beach annexed Corona del Mar, zoning laws were established for the village, which basically allowed a single-story home with a rental unit above the garage in the back. So far, so good. But as Corona del Mar got more popular and property values rose, a pressured city allowed more and more square footage per lot until we arrived at 40-foot-high roofs in some cases and just a ton of square footage packed into relatively modest lots. If we can turn back the clock, wouldn't it have been nice to have stricter zoning laws in CDM to preserve that village feel? I'm not suggesting only cottages be allowed, but there could have been a compromise that would have allowed for larger houses, but done so in a manner that reflected CDM's unique feel. Plenty of other cities have done something similar, including special preservation districts for Santa Ana's Floral Park and the City of Orange's downtown area. Unfortunately, that window has closed for Corona del Mar. The good news is, despite all this, Corona del Mar remains one of the best neighborhoods in the country. I just think an opportunity was missed along the way. All right, the seventh worst idea in Newport Beach history was the Irvine Company's original plan in 1964 for the Newport Coast, which called for 50,000 dwellings to house 80,000 residents. To give you some context about how massive that plan was, Newport Beach's current population is a little more than 87,000. The Irvine Company wanted to jam 80,000 residents into the Newport coast. To make room for all the houses, the plan was for the topography to be flattened quite a bit so the coastal hills would have lost their wonderful character. 
also the Irvine Company proposed houses between Pacific Coast Highway and the beach, a plan that ultimately didn't happen because the state ended up buying that strip of land from the Irvine Company. And that's why you have Crystal Cove State Park today. By the way, the price of that land the state paid, and this included El Moro Canyon, was $13 million in the mid-1970s. Over the years, the Irvine Company faced all kinds of obstacles in trying to develop the Newport Coast, including the burgeoning environmental and slow-growth movements and new California agencies and laws. But then along came Donald Bren, The master planner and legendary perfectionist took control of the Irvine Company in 1983 and decided to start the planning of the Newport Coast from scratch. The result was a development that today contains 2,600 dwellings down from 50,000. There's now about 10,000 Newport Coast residents, and that's down from the 80,000 starting point, an insane reduction of almost 88%. It was also developed in an environmentally sensitive way and preserves 72% of the land as open and recreational space. That's an amazing turnaround. And all thanks to Newport Beach activists that fought the original plan and Donald Bren. Now we're down to the top six worst ideas in Newport Beach history. The Dirty Half Dozen. And we'll cover those in the third and final installment of this episode. Thanks for getting into this podcast time machine with me and counting down the worst ideas in city history. We'll see you next time.